this is your host, Lindsay Rowland. Because September is Suicide Awareness and Prevention Month, we are highlighting a powerful story about mental health and wellness. Our very, very special guest today is General Greg Martin, Major General, U.S. Army retired. We are very grateful to have him on the show to discuss his story and very public mental health battle that has resulted in a passionate mental health campaign to stop the stigma and save lives. Without further ado, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Lindsay. Great to be with you. All right, let's get started right away. Sir, again, thank you for being here. I wanted to begin with you discussing your military career and how you rose to the rank of a two-star general. So my military career started, I was a walk-on to Army ROTC at the University of Maine, and I liked it. And then I decided to apply to West Point, and I did, and I got in. And so I graduated. I, I really loved West Point. You know, it was a great program, academics, athletics, leadership. I did well there, got the branch of my choice, which was Corps of Engineers, got to go to Ranger School, Airborne, and then off to my first job as a platoon leader in what was then West Germany. And during the course of being a platoon leader, I just fell in love with the soldiers. I mean, I just loved being around them. And, you know, I really enjoyed the hard, challenging, you know, often dangerous mission of a combat engineer platoon. And we had a great wartime mission. You know, we basically put in obstacles and barriers and dug fighting positions for tanks and armored personnel carriers and artillery, you know, right up on the East German border. And I just loved it. And once I was out there doing that job, I really never looked back. And so within months of being a platoon leader, I just couldn't think of anything else I'd rather do. And so from there, it went to, you know, company command, then funded graduate school, then, you know, more great assignments, battalion command, brigade command. And then I think my philosophy was, you know, do the very, very best I could and try to encourage and bring that out of the troops. So do the best I could. Always treat people with dignity and respect and care for them, you know, not just professionally and as soldiers, but their personal life too. you know, look out for them and their families, their financial issues, you know, whatever was going on in their life, try to oversee that and help them solve their problems so they can live a better life and focus on their job. And then also always, you know, do the right thing, you know, live ethically with strong character and encourage that throughout the command. And so I kind of really did those. Those were my leadership pillars in every job that I had from platoon leader up to two star. And then I also just tried to keep things really upbeat, positive, work hard, you know, adopt, you know, an attitude of gratitude, which I'm sure you heard before, but just don't complain, don't be a complainer or a down person or negative, but be upbeat, be positive and whatever comes your way, have an attitude of gratitude and then get after solving the problem. So that's kind of how I lived and worked. And I think over, you know, three plus decades, it just carried me all the way up to the rank of major general. And I give much, if not most of the credit 
to the soldiers and the, and the civilians who did the work in, while I was in charge, because they did great work and the organizations did very, very well, for which I got, you know, much of the credit. And then my family was great. I mean, my wife was fantastic, you know, very strong supporter of me, the units, the army, fun to be around, happy. And I had three great kids who, who were really supportive as well. So in a nutshell, that's kind of my career. No, thank you for sharing. Yeah, no, I mean, it, I mean, you don't make it that far in the rings without being incredibly sharp and hardworking. So, you know, it's very impressive, sir. I wanted to segue into, I think this is a great segue into talking about what ended your career. So if we could, we could discuss how it sort of came to an end, not by choice necessarily. Yeah. So it really came to an end because I unknowingly had bipolar disorder. It was triggered the genetic predisposition for bipolar, which is how the scientists explain it, I had that in my DNA, in my brain, but it, was, it wasn't triggered actively until 2003 with the intense stress of the Iraq war. What that caused in my brain was an extreme overabundance, overproduction, overdistribution of dopamine, endorphins, and other biochemicals that create mania. And so when that all kicked in, I went into a mania and it damaged my brain circuitry so that I never recovered from it. I've dealt with it subsequently, but so I was in a state of mania for most of the year in Iraq, but it was a very high performing mania that gave me excess energy, drive, enthusiasm, creativity. And so it actually helped me to do better. I did a better job because I was manic and I had bipolar disorder. And so then when I went back, I redeployed to Germany, sort of the way I explain it is the, the moon of depression eclipsed the sun of mania. And so when I got back in the stress of, I wasn't in the stress of being in a combat zone, all those biochemicals that had given me mania, now I had an underproduction and distribution. And so I spiraled into, I would call it, serious depression. I reported it to the medical people when we did our redeployment health screening, but they asked, are you suicidal? No. Do you want to hurt somebody? I said, no. They said, okay, you're fine. But I wasn't fine. I had pretty serious depression. And I sort of limped and staggered for the next several months, trying to self-medicate myself through intense exercise, prayer, motivational music, alcohol, ever more alcohol, off-duty, what got me through that depression was the structure of army life. You know, just it's so structured and you just have to do these things. I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. And after several months, the depression just lifted and it went away. And that was the completion of my first full cycle of manic depression, up, down. Bipolar had gone into mania, depression, and then back to normality. And so that was in 2003, 2004. And over the next decade, I had no idea I had bipolar. Nobody else knew it. It was undetected, unknown, undiagnosed. But over the course of that decade, my highs got higher. My lows got lower. I started getting more paranoia and, you know, elements of psychosis mixed in. And so it, it just, it, my bipolar, the cycles got worse and worse for a decade, but I, I kept, I kept performing very, very well. I got promoted twice. I kept going to bigger jobs with, 
you know, more complexity. And I was really a recognized leader for being a transformational leader, you know, very high energy, very smart. And they put me in charge of some really important educational training institutions. But what happened is by the time I got to 2014, and I was the president of National Defense University, which is the highest military school, I went into acute mania. I mean, really acute. I, I was what they called acute, full-blown. My brain just rocketed up to where I was way over the top in everything. I mean, the way I thought, my mind was racing all the time. I mean, just from one idea to another to another. My speaking was pressured and fast. And I, I would talk sometimes for hours on end. I would run meetings over. They would go for hours. People couldn't stop me. I'd call unscheduled meetings. I would drop into classrooms and lectures and just take over, which was totally inappropriate. I became a religious zealot, fanatic. Um, I spent lots of money that made no sense, you know, without talking to my wife, which didn't make her happy at all. And I could go on, but if you look at the criteria for mania, I mean, I was, I was really manic. And my performance started to get erratic, disruptive, and people, even people who really liked me and wanted me to succeed, and they loved the transformational changes that I was making on behalf of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, they started saying, there's something wrong. There's something really, really wrong. And so anonymous complaints from student, faculty, instructors, administration people, they started sending them up by chain of command to to the chairman ultimately and so he got hit with dozens and dozens if not you know a hundred or more of these anonymous complaints about my behavior and how erratic and disruptive I was and so he did a series of very objective professional assessments one with the students one with the faculty looking at the curriculum and then one focused on me and my leadership And he brought in unbiased outside people to do these assessments. And then they back briefed him. And he came to the conclusion that, that I really, he, his, in his words, he said, you know, I had known, we had worked together for 17 years. He had been my boss multiple times, a friend, a mentor. We got along great. I mean, I I think the world of him. He said, once I got all these reports um, and these assessments, I was absolutely shocked. And there was really, I had no choice for the good of the organization, for Greg's good, and for my health and my family, than to take me and remove me from the position and then give me a command order to go get a mental health evaluation. So that's what happened. You know, at the time, I was so manic and I was so high. It didn't phase me. I wasn't angry. I wasn't disappointed. I didn't argue with him. When he asked me what I thought about this, about being removed from the job, I just told him, I said, hey, sir, you know, I think you're making a mistake. I think, like you said, you told me I'm doing a great job, which I think I am. And if you just gave me, you know, my third year in command, I think I could turn the corner and make all the curriculum changes. I could weed out all the bad apples. I could get new, strong, supportive faculty and administrators. And we could really, really set NDU up for the next decade. But you got to leave me there. He said, well, I really appreciate it. You sound like you're Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the mountain only to have it roll back down on you. And we laughed about that. He's a poet, you know, a literature guy. And then we talked, he told me, he said, you know, when I walked in the office, he gave me a big hug. He said, Greg, I love you like a brother, but your time at NDU is done. You have till 5 p.m. today to resign or I fire you. Do you understand? Yes. 
Yes, sir. And, and then he said, and by the way, I'm ordering you to get a mental health exam because a lot of people think you've really, you know, gone over the edge and you're not, you, you have emotional and mental problems that need to be evaluated. And then um, he said, now, let me talk, let me say a few more words. You did an unbelievable job. You, as my quarterback at NDU, you took the ball from the end zone into the red zone, you know, using a football term. So from deep in the end zone, all the way up, getting ready to score a touchdown. He said, you, in two years, you did more, you did about a decade worth of work. Nobody could have done more. Nobody could have done better. I'm going to keep all your policies, procedures, hires, changes to the curriculum. Everything is going to stay in place. And any changes are going to have to be approved by me. And so I said, yeah, that's great. Good. So then he called my wife in and gave her a very brief summary of the whole thing. I think she was disappointed for me getting taken out of command at the 36 year mark. And, um, but I think she was relieved that I was not going to be in command, not going to be the president anymore because it had become so stressful, antagonistic. So, I mean, it was like a war. I mean, the faculty and the administration pretty much went to war against me and they didn't like what the chairman was doing. So any change was resisted, bureaucratic warfare, et cetera, leaks to the press, you know, anything they could do to stop me, to discredit me, to undermine me, you know, basically cut my knees out to, to delay or slow down or stop the transformation was pretty much what happened with, you know, some, some exceptions. Real quick, a couple, real quick, a couple questions. Did you, did you see this coming? Like you just talked about all the things that, you know, were going on behind the scenes. Now, were you aware of this? And then were you also aware of the surveys that were going on that your commander was doing on you? Or were you like totally like isolated from this? I was totally aware. The chairman told me he was going to do them. He told me what the subject of study was going to be. He told me who was going to be on the um, assessment team. And then that they, you know, and he asked that I give them full access around NDU to talk to whoever, which I did. Then he said they would give me a thorough back brief at the end of each assessment. And each assessment went for at least a week. They gave me a back brief on what they found, that what their recommendations would be, and then they backbriefed the chairman. So I was, I mean, I thought it was very professionally done. It's very open, really, really uh, smart. They, they asked all the right questions. They looked at the right things. They talked to the right people. They were totally transparent and honest with me. You know, at the end of the day, the student won, as far as the students and the, and the uh, curriculum, they were really quite happy, but many, many comments about how erratic and disturbed, disturbing I had become, and with lots of examples. The faculty and the new curriculum, the faculty, after lots of resistance, actually came to see the wisdom in the new curriculum, and they, they supported it. After they had fought me for you know almost two years, they actually came around and said, wow, Man, Martin's pretty smart. These these ideas are really good. Yeah, we can we they embrace the curriculum, the new one. But they said, but but Martin has lost it. I mean, we think he's gone crazy emotionally, mentally, psychiatrically. And then the third assessment was done focused on me and my leadership. And it came to the conclusion that I had developed 
serious mental psychiatric problems should be removed from the position and needed to get a command referral to mental health. So that's what the three assessments were. And then I'll just fast forward it a little bit. Oh, that was in July of 2014. I went, I got three separate assessments psychiatrically and all three said I was fine. I was healthy. There was nothing wrong. I was fit for duty, which shows you the difficulty of, of diagnosing bipolar disorder. If all they do is talk to the patient, they have to go get, like if they'd have gotten these assessments from the chairman, then they probably would have said, whoa, this guy really has problems. We need to do something about this, but they didn't. And so they talked to me. And as you know, when you're in a state of bipolarity, you can sit down and have very intelligent, smart, coherent, persuasive conversations. And so they, they thought I was good to go. In fact, the, the chief of psychiatry at Walter Reed, and he even said, he said, you are the most emotionally stable flag officer I've ever encountered. What? I'm in the, I'm in peak mania. So anyway, I left that job. The, the chairman was good to me. He didn't fire or relieve me. He removed me, which there's a huge difference legally and financially. If you get removed, you can just go ahead and retire at, you know, or go to another job. If you get fired or relieved, there's implications for your rank, for your retirement pay. There's potential legal implications. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong if you get fired. So he did me a favor. The Army took me back from the joint world, gave me kind of a, lo- a little bit of a soft landing job so that I could, you know, get ready, do my medical and get ready for retirement. So I'd say both the chairman and the Army treated me well. And then, though, over the next few months, I spiraled down out of mania and then crashed into horrible, horrible depression. I mean, really just unbelievable, worst I'd ever had. And I, I limped through the remaining months before retirement. By the time I retired, I was a complete basket case with severe, crippling, hopeless depression combined with terrifying delusions, you know, psychosis. And I left the army in horrible shape, had no plan for medical care, et cetera, et cetera. And I was in, I would say, literally a, a, a fight for my life for the next you know, eight months or so until finally a friend helped me get into the VA got good care. The VA sort of, I bottomed out during the VA inpatient treatment, electroconvulsive therapy, all kinds of stuff, different medications. But then ultimately they prescribed lithium and that was a game changer. With the lithium, the depression just stopped and it stabilized me. So I didn't fall into depression, but I didn't rise into mania. I was just solid. And then we moved down here to Florida five years ago, and it took me a while to kind of get back on my feet, rebuild my life, get some kind of, you know, you know, I was still pretty much in the recovery mode after years of intense bipolar. Slowly but surely, I kind of got my feet back under me, rebuilt my life. And now fast forward five years, I mean, I'm living a great life. I'm happy, healthy. My wife and I love it here have a wonderful network of friends and fun activities that I do. Life is good, but you know, as you know, the bipolar never goes away. It will always be in my brain. And so I have to be vigilant forever. It's like one of these forever wars. If you're not vigilant and on your toes and doing the right things in terms of medication, healthy living, seeing your doctors, low stress, et cetera, all those different parts of healthy living, the bipolar can come roaring back and take you down again. 
And so I'm, I'm determined not to let that happen. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question because I think, well, number one, I can relate to you in so many ways. As far as, especially when you're talking about going to therapy, I can fool anyone. I'm the, my mother says I'm the best. Like I can fool you into thinking that everything is absolutely okay because I know it's not and I'm really good at faking it. So I completely understand how they should be talking to your family or they should be looking at your work evaluations. And yeah, so I get that. I did want to talk, you you mentioned in your task and purpose article, and you did just mention it a second ago, how it bipolar does not go away. So what are some of the things that you actively do every day to, to ensure your mental wellness? Very good question. Number one, I strive to get eight hours of sleep a night. Now, sometimes I only get seven, but eight hours. And I wake up, I have a structured schedule. So I try to wake up at six. I try to be, you know, in bed asleep by 10 o'clock, 10 p.m. So I wake up and the coffee pot's ready to go. All I have to do is get up, hit the button, and I just enjoy that first cup of coffee. It's so nice. And then if the sun's coming up, I try to watch these beautiful Florida sunrises over the palm trees. I try to do a a daily devotional, not too involved, but it's, you know, kind of grounds me spiritually. I try to do that. Then I bring coffee into my wife while she's still in bed. So I try to spoil her a little bit. And then I get dressed, get ready. And then I am out the door for my PT early, you know, by seven, I'm out the door and I go to the gym four days a week, four mornings, and I get to the gym and I do aerobics and then I take a fitness class uh, or a dancing class. And then those days I lift weights as well. Other days that I don't go to the gym, the other three days, I basically go to the beach and go on a, a power walk slash run on the beach. So I work out in the morning and then I come home and I have, well, I have breakfast before I go. And then I come home and I have lunch. And several mornings a week, we have different, I have different social circles that we go out for like breakfast or coffee or something fun and just, you know, get to be better friends. And these are all, you know, gym people, which are like my wife and I, all our best friends are from the gym. But then I come home, have lunch. I go to work on mental health things. You know, I'm on the phone, I'm on videos, I'm writing, I'm thinking, I'm trying to get articles done, published, and you know kind of what we do. So you've seen it the last couple months because we've been working together on this mental wellness and and all that. And I mean, that's pretty much much what I do. I mean, I developed a a mission statement for my life, which is, you know, sharing my bipolar story, stop the stigma and save lives. I mean, that's it. So I've been offered jobs and I think about it and I say, how is that going to help my mission? If Well, it's not. So, hey, thanks for the offer, but no thanks. And I I look at everything through that lens now. It's almost like my mission, my ministry, whatever you want to call it. So I work pretty much most of the afternoon. I do take time to take a mid-afternoon nap because the brain, it really recovers during sleep. So I go in and I lay down. And uh, sometimes I'm just my eyes closed and I'm relaxed for a half hour. Other times I'll fall asleep for an hour. And I take a nap. I try to every single day. So again, structure. Then I get up from the nap and I come back and I do more mental wellness work. And then I work right up until 
news time. And I really like Nora O'Donnell on CBS News. So my wife and I watch her and I do yoga. I do a yoga workout while I'm watching the news. We watch uh, PBS NewsHour, who I think are very good. And then we, we, we usually eat dinner, you know, together while we're watching the news. And then we love, we've, since I was so busy in the army, I never got to do this, but there are so many great TV series and shows and movies. We watch and relax and enjoy these shows. I mean, they're just phenomenal. I mean, I can't believe how good they are and how I miss that for, you know, all those decades of my life because I didn't have time. And then we, it's really good, though, because it's fun. It's relaxing. We have something to talk about. And, you know, and then if we find a really good one, then, you know, you talk about it with your friends when you go out for coffee or whatever. And then get ready for bed and in bed by 10. So pretty structured day for the most part. Well, you talked about earlier in the interview that the the structure of the military kept your bipolar at bay or not at bay, however you want to look at it. So it's interesting that now you've gone back to structure as being part of part of I would say your treatment plan. Absolutely. You know, I read a bunch of books back before I retired or after I retired, and some of the keys to having a happy retired life are number one having a real strong meaning and purpose in your life, which I have now with the mental health wellness mission. So a strong meaning and purpose. Number two, a structured life. So if you just flounder around and don't have a structure, that's really bad for your mental well-being. And then thirdly is develop, if you don't have one, then develop a network of friends that make you happy and you like to be around. And so when Maggie and I moved down here, we didn't know anybody. And so we developed a strategy, like a really a purposeful strategy to meet and make and develop friendships with people. And it's worked great. So, I mean, we have just, we have like the coolest friends ever. And that's been a really big part of my recovery and our happiness. And they actually say scientifically that loneliness or not having friends is one of the biggest causes of uh, poor health and early death. So one of the biggest antidotes to depression, you know, unhappiness, unhealthiness is to have a network of friends who make you happy. And you just, you know, when you don't know anybody and you don't like when you're in a job or you're going to school, this author called it, you have an automatic friend generator. Just by going to school, you make friends. By going to work, you make friends. You come down here, you don't know anybody. You have to have a way to generate and make and keep friends. So Maggie and I have really worked hard on that and we have a strategy. So that's been a big part of it. No, and that is so true because you you sort of have friends because they're there and there's no reason not to be friends, but now you actually have to work for them. And that is, it is, it's a, it's a different relationship. So, and you get to pick and choose, but, but I did want to, I, I did want to let, to let our listeners know how you and I met each other. So I was reading your task and purpose article, and I think that everyone should read it. And I saw the article and I was so impressed because you are the, the highest ranking officer or, you know, soldier that I have seen speak out about mental health. And I, and I, you know, I couldn't believe your article. I was reading it. I could identify with it. And I was like, you know, just like really happy to see you out there um, doing this. 
But I wanted to ask you this question, and I think I know the answer, but I wanted to ask is, do you feel that your rank holds a responsibility to this topic to be a strong voice and advocate for mental health? Uh, Because you obviously have the platform to do it. And then the second part of that question is, when folks see someone from your rank speak about this, do you think it helps lessen the stigma? I would say yes to both questions. I would say, you know, I never wanted bipolar disorder. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I got it. And so that's the truth. That's the fact. That's the reality. So I went through a terrible crisis, you know, probably was closer to losing my life than I realized. And everything could have fallen apart, marriage, family, health, finance, everything. But, you know, fortunately, for a number of reasons, I was able to stabilize, pull through it, rebuild a new life. And so I went through a, you know, a horrendous experience. 10 million Americans or more have bipolar disorder. You know, another 50 plus million have some other type of mental health disorder. I feel like, you know, as a soldier, as a patriot, as a human being, I owe it to people to tell my story. Why not? You know, maybe if I tell my story, someone else can get encouragement or hope or have a better awareness on what to do for themselves or their family member or their friend or their work colleague. So to me, once I got healthy enough to start writing and and thinking about this and reflecting and capturing it, I saw it really as an obligation, like my duty as an American, as a soldier, as a, you know, a, a human being, as a Christian believer to help other people. And, and then part two of your question, I definitely think it matters when higher ranking, higher visibility people come out and say, here's what I went through and here's what I can teach you and hopefully you can learn. I'll give you an example of the difference it makes. If you go back to the 1970s, there was a tremendous stigma with breast cancer for women. And that was probably before your time. But there was a terrible stigma. People were ashamed. They were embarrassed. It was a kept secret. And Betty Ford, who was President Ford's wife, she was awesome. She came public and said, I have been diagnosed with breast cancer here's what I'm going to do about it. And then she kept the media and the public informed about her treatment, what was going on. And then she recovered from it. And after she did that, the whole view of breast cancer changed and the stigma went away. And I mean, there is no stigma at all with breast cancer today. Zero. I mean, if anything, it's kind of celebrated as a crusade. Even the NFL football players, they wear the pink ribbons and the whole country does. So yeah, I think it makes a difference that in, in, you know, I'm clearly obviously not the first senior military officer who was struck with really bad bipolar or some other mental health disorder. I'm definitely not the first, but from what people say, I may be the first that has come out and written about it and spoken about it and all that. And already the reaction in the um, response has been overwhelmingly positive from all kinds of people, young, old, you name it, military, civilians, medical professionals. So I'm glad I did it. And, you know, one of the things that I will say, I don't feel stigmatized. Like I don't feel ashamed, embarrassed, stigmatized that I have bipolar disorder. I didn't then, I don't today. 
So to me, there's nothing to be stigmatized about. Just like people who have diabetes or heart disease or cancer, they don't feel stigmatized or embarrassed. So, you know, what, what I have with bipolar, it is, in fact, scientifically a physiological thing you know, with the inner workings of the brain, with the biochemicals, et cetera. So why should I be stigmatized about it? It's just, it is what it is. It's physiological. So I'm like way past that. So, which I think gives me a lot of power and strength that, I mean, I don't hold back at all. You don't hold back. And I just love it. I love it. It makes me like not as ashamed about having, you know, PTSD or, you know, it, it helps, it helps people, I think, encourage people to talk to each other about it. And even like our group that we're working with, and I, that's my next thing I wanted to talk. Can you talk to us on Stop the Stigma and Save Lives? And what are you doing? And what are your plans? Because I'm so excited that I am able to work with you on this. And I just, yeah, can you talk a little bit on that? Yes. So, the things that I like to do, and I think I'm fairly good at my strengths, and this was true as an army officer and, and now um, out of the army, is number one, I like to talk and speak. I, I mean, I just, I just like it. It's fun. It makes me happy. And then if I get to speak about you know, my favorite topic, bipolar mental health, then I'm really happy. Number two, I like to write. And I think writing is very, very powerful because you can take your ideas and put them down and they can go out to, you know, literally millions of people. And then I like networking and collaborating and building teams. Like that makes me happy. So my strategy is start local. Like I first started telling my bipolar story here in Cocoa Beach with some of my gym friends who it just came up. I mean, just conversation, getting to know each other. And so I just told them, here's my story. And, and almost everybody you tell your story to they'll say, oh, wow, I have a brain story too, or my family or friend or work, or they're interested. So I found that by being open and honest with my friends who I trusted down here, it just started to grow. And then I started writing and I wrote the, the uh, I, I started writing and I started giving talks like to church groups, retreat groups, the Army War College, and a number of other venues. I told the story verbally before I had it written down. So that's kind of how I got it going. And then a little, about a year and a half ago, I started writing a manuscript for a book. And I, I, I worked from, I'd say, April of 2020 till about April of 2021. I mean, I got the manuscript done. I went through it several times, got the Pentagon Security Review, and then, you know, it's a really lengthy, laborious process to find a publisher, to get a book published. I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, it moves like a glacier. So anyway, I got all that, the manuscript done, and then I had a big pause in the action. And I said, well, why don't I write a short version of the manuscript? And so that became the task and purpose article, a very boiled down version of the story. And then once that got out there, you know, I, I, I was told that it got over 100,000 hits. I mean, I got so many responses. I mean, just dozens and dozens. I mean, way over 100 emails, LinkedIn, Facebook. People got my, you know, they got my contact info. And so I've had dozens and dozens of conversations, as many of them as possible. I try to do in the open on Facebook, LinkedIn, so that other people can read this stuff and you can start building momentum and, and speed. 
and, and energy. And then, so I wrote that article and then that generated lots of requests to speak, to do podcasts, to, you know, write other articles. And then I shared all, all my, then my Cocoa Beach network just rose dramatically because I sent the task and purpose article to like everybody I knew. So they all read and they said, Hey, this is awesome. And so then my local home base kind of grew and then people like you and Carol Hatrup and David Bartley and others, they reached out to me and said, Hey, can we talk? Can we collaborate? Can we do something together? So I was like, you know, yes to everybody. And then I had my hardcore happy Cocoa Beach warriors like Jeannie, who is like in her sister, who is an actual mental health professional. And I met Jeannie at the gym in dancing class. And like, so we were like really good friends. And so we put this little team together and, you know, it's, I think the direction we're going now with less frequent meetings and let things develop organically, you know, I, there's people in the group that if I, like these short articles that I've been doing in September, there's people I send it to, you know, to look at it, tell me what they think. So I'm getting a lot of help on the, like these short articles. I've gotten some pretty good feedback on speaking. So let me tell you, uh, Bonnie Frazier, she's invited me to a, it's a, it's like a PTSD seminar with the Buffalo police, firemen, first responders. So I'm going to do that by webinar next week. David Bartley and I are writing an article together. I love um, David. Bill Barco and I are working on an article. You and I are kind of working on the Brandon Act and the lobbying stuff. So it's so that's kind of what I'm doing. Then I just got this article out. Then you gave me the great idea, like during Suicide Prevention Month, can you write a little a little blurb, a little bites of message? So I, I started doing that which you saw, and then that generated interest on social media. And then I, I took and clued a bunch of those together and wrote an article out of that. And then I wrote another article. I took the, I took the task and purpose article and I boiled it down to a thousand words. And then that got picked up by Florida Today and the early bird of all places. Yes, the early bird. <laughs> the, the early bird has like a bazillion people read it. It's like I, one guy told me there's over a million people look at the early bird every day, over a million. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he told me. He's a retired three-star who runs a foundation. So I'm doing that. I've got an op-ed that the Boston Globe has taken. So that'll come out hopefully this week. And that's on Afghan vets, you know, in the aftermath of the debacle in Afghanistan. And then I've got another longer article that's going to, I'm trying to go back to task and purpose. That'll be kind of the rest of the story so I told a big chunk of the story in the first one in March, but there's a whole rest of the story. Like I, I don't talk about left of boom, if you will, like boom being like an IED terminology. Like the big boom was when I got removed from command in the chairman's office. And then I go from the, from the boom, the explosion, the removal to the right to today. But I didn't talk hardly at all about how did I get to this crisis and so the next task and purpose article will be much, much more about describing and a analyzing how did I go from healthy to acute bipolar to where I got removed. And so I describe and I give lots of examples. So someone who reads it, they can say, okay, so, oh, that's what mania looks like. That's what it, it okay, you know, it's, it's helpful. And then I do a really strong job on lessons learned and recommendations for the military. You know, most of them, I think people will accept. There's a few in there that'll, that'll probably upset some people, but I figure, you know, I'll use my platform to say some things that need to be said. 
So anyway, that's that's what the next one is. So I guess that's a long way to say my strategy is to speak, to write, to collaborate, to use social media to generate energy and momentum. And then I'm just going to keep doing it. Like all this stuff with you in the last like just few weeks. I mean, that just like happened. It just organically happened. And, you know, it just popped into my mind the other day to put that Brandon act thing on, you know, and I got a lot of response to that. That was people were really moved by that story and about the parents. So I think stuff like that's just going to keep on happening. And where I sort of draw my line that, you know, when I was in the army, I was a good staff officer. I could do admin, finance, logistics, all that stuff. I can do it. I'm pretty good at it, but I don't like it. It doesn't make me happy. So I'm not going to do any of that. So people have said, hey, why don't you start a foundation? I know what a nonprofit. Oh. It's so much work. So much work. And then you got to oh. beg people for money. And that's oh. annoying. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I'm doing all this for, for nothing. I'm just like, you know, I have my army retirement, so I'm happy. I have enough. I do want to highlight real quick. I want to go back first. So stand by listeners for part two, his article. I think you said task and purpose. I do want to um, let our listeners know your book, uh, Battling Bipolar Disorder, A General's Invisible War. Where can we find it? When can we find it? Can you give us the details? Okay, so it's going to be kind of a memoir that really combines my military service with my mental health disorder, bipolar it's going to be because you can't, you don't have one without the other and they're going to be together. So the manuscript has been done for six months now, but finding a publisher and getting the manuscript in the form that the particular publisher wants is a lot of work. It's a lot more time, effort, et cetera, than I realized. And what we've, we've gone to one big publisher, my agent has, and they, they spent two weeks with it, which is pretty impressive. And they read the whole thing. You know, they read the sample chapters that they'd asked for. Then they read the whole manuscript and they talked about it as a team. And they said, hey, this is this is really good. We really like it, but it, we're not going to take it yet because it's not ready for for prime time. You need to get a what they call a professional writer to take and reform it and make it more of a flowing story that people just can't put down and they can't wait to pick it up and read. And so I'm not at that point yet. So I'm at, I'm in the process right now of trying to identify and hire a professional writer who is closely tied to one of the major publishers who has great credibility with that particular publishing house and, you know, work a deal, work a contract, structure it so that, you know, you, you have to give some upfront money to hire that person, but you want most of their money to come in the form of an incentive so that they'll get the book picked up by a publisher, will get a contract, and then they get a percent of the contract. So that's where we are right now. I think it's probably going to take a year for the book to come out, which I, that's longer than I thought, but that's just my, you know, honest, realistic estimate. Okay. Yeah. So we will keep an eye out for that. Okay. Um, but I also, all right. I know you're a busy man. I have uh, three more you have questions. As, you have as much time as you want. <laughs> Seriously, Lindsay, take okay, as long good. as you want. Okay. I want to, um, I, I want to go back to the Brandon Act, but I want to go, I want to go back a little bit farther than that. I want to get your thoughts on our current situation. You know, we have 22 veterans, well, I think that's veterans. And then there's the active duty component. And then there's, 
you know, but we have a, we have a suicide problem. So I don't think that anyone can deny that. But so my question to you is, the first part of the question is, in your three decade plus career, was seeking behavioral health services encouraged or dis or discouraged among officers and enlisted? And was there a difference? And did you see a slow transition in this as a prior from when you entered the military to when you retired? And that is mental, mental health care. I entered West Point in 1975, aftermath of Vietnam, and then came on, you know, into the field army in 79. I got to tell you, I don't even remember hardly any talk about mental health, mental wellness, you know, behavioral health services. I mean, like nothing. I don't think I hardly knew a soldier. I mean, very rarely. I mean, there were some, but very, very limited numbers of soldiers who said they were experiencing, you know, serious mental health issues and that we got them treatment. I mean, it was just so few and far between and rare. But I think there were a lot more problems that never came to light, that people didn't come forward and say, I need health. I think a lot of mental health problems express themselves in behavioral problems. So somebody who is severely depressed or manic or PTS or whatever, instead of having classic symptoms of a a mental health disorder, they would jump in their car and drive at 100 miles an hour and get in an accident. They'd go in a bar and they get completely drunk and then tear up the bar. Or they would get completely drunk and they'd run around the barracks with a baseball bat, smashing all the windows and beating people up. And so what would happen is the soldiers who did these bad things, of which there were many, many, many soldiers who did bad things, we the army culture and the reflexive action was, aha, we have a conduct problem. Okay, give this guy or gal extra duty. That'll fix them. And then they go do it again. Okay, give them an Article 15. Then they do it again. Okay, court-martial. And then you'd give them some sort of bad chapter, you know, bad conduct chapter out of the military. And then a lot of these people would go out on the street, no medical benefits, no mental health evaluation. You know, they're not qualified or eligible to go into the VA. And they start drinking, you know, alcohol, drug dependency, homeless. If they were married, the marriage blows up and, you know, they end up homeless, suicide, whatever. So I think there was probably quite a bit of mental health activity going on that was undetected, unrecognized. Nobody knew, nobody knew what the symptoms were. And I think that went on for most of my career. I did see a noticeable change after 9-11. Like I'll give you the first big example was I was really surprised at how seriously the Army took post-deployment health screening. You know, I was in based out of U.S. Army Europe, and we came back from Iraq. I mean, all the USERA units, I mean, we had a stand down. And the four-star, General Bell, the USERA commander, I mean, he was all over this. I mean, people had to back-brief him on the process, the timelines, how you're going to do it. Are there enough doctors? Are there enough nurses? How are you going to get all your people through? How long is it going to take? I mean, it was like a big science project to get this thing done, too standard, on time, and then get back in your training cycle. And I mean, it was very, 
deliberately well organized. It was done, I think, about as well as better than anything I had ever seen. And then what I noticed is as more and more rotations started coming back from Iraq, Afghanistan, and the guerrilla warfare and the insurgency and the IEDs, all that started really, really picking up. And these wars got really ugly with people getting killed and wounded and just the trauma of being in a 360 degree battlefield all the time. Um, more and more people started getting PTS, depression, suicide started going up. And the army and the military at large, I think then said, whoa, we have a real mental health project a problem. We need to take this seriously. We need to expand the capacity for mental health screening. We need to be more sensitive to the needs of the troops. I think there was also a big surge in the understanding of PTS with Vietnam era veterans and their suicide rates going up. So they all kind of came together. And I think since 9-11, it's 20 years later, I think there's been a big improvement, awareness, sensitivity, et cetera, et cetera. However, where the rubber meets the road down in the squads and platoons, the bottom line is, and I saw this, this is where it broke down. Like when I committed Fort Leonard Wood, we had a huge emphasis on this. And it was good to go from the generals and colonels and sergeant majors, even company commanders. They understood the issues. They supported it. They were not persecuting people for mental health issues. But when you get down like inside of a squad or a platoon and there's a motor pool full of equipment, tanks, artillery, trucks, whatever, radios, weapons, and you have to have soldiers covering down on that equipment, doing maintenance, taking care of it. When you go to the field or the NTC or on a deployment, you have to have a troop to cover down on every piece of equipment or you got to get a troop from some other unit. You have to steal them from somewhere else. And I think at that level, and the higher generals all agreed with this, at about the squad leader platoon sergeant level, it just sort of breaks down. And it's not that they're bad guys. It's that they're under enormous pressure to meet readiness requirements. And so when a soldier says, hey, I feel really lousy, I'm depressed, I, I, I need to go see a doctor, I'm in really bad shape. And then the platoon sergeant says, or well, who's going to take care of your truck? Well, I guess we'll have to just sit there. No, get your ass back out there and start fixing the truck. Or, you know, we're going to the NTC next week and we need you to go. And you can take care of your mental health problem when you get back from the NTC. And, and that's where it falls apart. I just want to say that is exactly how it plays out. Yeah, like, exactly. Right. So I think we've improved a lot. And there's a lot more awareness, but it certainly has not gone away. And we've got a long way to go. And, you know, by definition, and I write about this in this, the next task and purpose article, as you can make, you can work this and get it as good as you can possibly get it. But at the end of the day, if by being diagnosed with certain types of mental health disorders, it will lead to the pulling of your clearance, the taking you off a promotion list, chaptering you out of the military, even if it's for the right reasons, there will be a stigma, period. I mean, there will be. But I think you have to educate people. Like in my case, my bipolar was so bad, I really shouldn't have been in command. I, I was in such terrible, terrible shape. I was a liability 
to the organization and to my unit. And I accept that. And I think there's going to be honest, candid dis- discussions with people that, you know, you, given what we need you to do, we, you, you really can't stay on active duty. You need to, and we'll help you get a job in the civilian sector where it's not the same rigors as the military. But as long as you have that situation where you will get pushed out, there's going to be a stigma of some kind. Now you can reduce the stigma. You can mitigate it. You can do all kinds of things like say, okay, well, you do have this mental health disorder, which maybe makes you ineligible for these MOSs, but here's all these other MOSs you could, you could do and, and, and do well. And, you know, let's talk about those. So I think there's ways we can, we can do better. Thank you for sharing your insight on that. Definitely with your experience, I, I feel like you have insight in how, how we can at least work on this issue. You and I have discussed several times some of your the activities that you do in the speaking engagements to that it, that I think we both agreed it's it's good for you to focus also on the civilian side because it's, and this is just my opinion. I think the I think the stigma of mental health and in, in the civilian side has progressed faster than the military side. I don't know if you agree with that statement, but I think it's important for us to take a look at what what private businesses are doing, or even like, I think it was Nike just gave their um, employees off an entire week. And I'm not saying those are the answers, but I'm saying it seems like self-care has uh, manifested itself better into the, those cultures. Do you, do you think the military is behind in this culture? And if you think so, how do we bring the military up to par with civilians? You know, I, I'm just sort of speculating right now because I haven't studied it in, uh, you know, that much. I would say that there's probably elements of civilian society and the civilian population that are probably ahead of the military. Like you gave an example of Nike, and there's probably lots and lots of corporations and probably even some government agencies that are ahead of the military. But then I'd be willing to bet there's a whole bunch that are behind. Because, I mean, when you look at the United States, 330 million people, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of businesses, you know, tens of thousands of government organizations at federal, state, local, you're talking enormous numbers. So I don't know where I would put us. I mean, just a guess, I'd probably say we're probably above the 50% line just because there's so much awareness and we talk about it so much. And, you know, the army came out with a total fitness manual that gets into total holistic health and fitness. So I, I think we're probably not as good as we should be, but we're probably not as bad as we might be. Okay. That's, that's interesting. That um, That's interesting. So maybe I, there is, and I've been out for five years, so maybe there is, more going on um, on the ground than I'm aware of because I am not there anymore. So I did want to talk about the Brandon Act and just so our listeners know the Brandon Act and thank you, sir, for supporting it. Uh, We really appreciate you using your platform to support it. The Brandon Act is progressing in Congress and it would be a bill that would allow soldiers to receive mental health care. Kind of going back to what the general was saying here, that instead of going to NTC and then we'll take care of your mental health or, you know, get that truck fixed or let's get through, you know, this week and then you can go, that it would be something that would immediately happen. And it would take out sort of the bureaucracy of going to 
the, the commander going through getting command referred or self-referral, it would just be automatic. It has been compared to the I am Vanessa Gein bill in the sense that it would be, no, I'm sorry, not the I am Vanessa Gein bill, but the restricted, non-restricted reporting of sexual assault, which you could go receive help without actually having to tell your command why you were, which which I think would stop the peer pressure of not going or would stop someone from thinking twice. They would just go do it, which is what they probably need to do. And it's the code word, the Brandon Act, and that would implement this action. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on that, sir. It looks like a very strong common sense sort of streamlined approach to countering acute mental health issues that could lead to suicide. So I, I like it. I mean, I think the suicide problem is important enough that having a simple, understandable, common sense solution like this could be a powerful deterrent or mitigator of suicides. I don't know as much about it as, as you do, um, but it seems like a smart, common sense way to, to deal with it. I don't I don't know why anybody would be opposed to it. And well, another thought I had on it too, and again, I've been out for five years, but when I was a company commander, if the soldier was command referred, you had to go visit the commander and the first sergeant would go visit the mental health provider and they would brief you on your soldier's mental health issues. And looking back at that, I think that that was just, I mean, I think it's a HIPAA violation, but I, I, I feel like what privacy I didn't give my soldiers, like, wasn't it not enough for me just to know, and this was mandatory. This wasn't something I made up that they didn't even have the privacy to like have some issues that I had to be told their commander had to be told everything. And I think those were just for command referral, maybe not self-referral. I, I don't remember, but I, you know, I just, I think that this bill allows uh, that privacy again. And the, and the, and, you know, whether it's a soldier who's having trouble with his wife, whether it's a drug addiction we don't know about, all the, you know, there's so many reasons to go to mental health. And maybe it's just because you're stressed out and you don't like your command. And to have that safe space to talk to someone and to, to work through these issues, I just, you know, I think, I think all soldiers uh, deserve that. And as you said, it's a common sense thing, but I, I, I fear that... There are some, well, I think there are some commands that are very good with mental health and let the soldiers go and, and do those things. But I feel like there's also still other commands that don't. And I think this is just telling commanders, like, you will do this. You will let them have their space to do this. And I think it's, it's Congress forcing the hand of commanders who maybe are less likely to be supportive. And we don't know who those are. And we don't know if they will even enforce the Brandon Act that they would let the soldier just up and go to behavioral health or that behavioral health would even have an appointment available. But I think it makes the command think that, you know, think about these actions before they react with maybe something that isn't positive for that soldier. So those are just, sorry, I got off on a tangent. <laughs> okay, one last question. Uh, what advice uh, can you give to those hurting right now over Afghanistan preceded by a year of COVID? Are we just piling issues on for veterans right now? I think we are piling them on. I mean, two huge things, one on top of the other. I, I would say 
for the veteran who, you know, many of whom are just so disgusted, disappointed, sad, heartbroken, depressed, whatever you, words you want to use, I would say reach out to friends, to people you know and trust that can talk to and, and just have a dialogue. Talk about this stuff. Listen listen to each other, be support each other and, and sort of try to work through it, which I think a lot of people are. I mean, there's been some great articles written that talk about how, you know, successful the tactical level lead leaders were in units and how proud they were of what they did locally, tactically, but it just, it didn't add up to a victory at the strategic level. I think, you know, understanding that and that, you know, they didn't do anything wrong, that they didn't lose the war, I think is important. Then going to the problem of mental wellness. I think everybody needs to understand what are the symptoms of mental health disorders? You know, what does depression look like? What does mania look like? What does PTS look like? Traumatic brain injury, moral injury, survivor's guilt. What do those things look like? What are the symptoms? It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy. I mean, not to be trained to, as a psychiatrist, but just to see, wow, this person is not doing well. And here's what I'm seeing. And then to be able to go talk to them and say, Hey, I've been noticing these things in you. You know, I've seen changes in your behavior, the way you're acting. Are, you know, are you okay? Everything going all right? And, and if not, you know, encourage them, take them by the hand, get them in to see some sort of medical professional that can sit down, you know, and, and evaluate them if they need help, if they need medical help, because these, these mental health things, they generally don't go away on their own. They generally, if left untreated, they get worse. And then that leads to alcohol abuse and drug abuse and anger issues and rage issues and anxiety. And then that means, you know, the relationships will begin to fall apart or fracture, which means bad, bad things, homeless, suicide, all that. So I think people need to be more attentive than before to the potential for mental health disorders and then the need to get people help. Because, I mean, every people talk to me and, and I tell them, you got to go see a mental, a mental health professional. I mean, you need to do that. I, I can't, I'm an amateur. I don't, I'm not a doctor. You know, go to the VA, go to a provider. So those are the big things I would emphasize. Okay. Thank, thank you for that. I think that's good insight. Well, I wanted to thank you. I wanted to personally thank you uh, for sharing your story, because as you know, I was chaptered out of the military for mental health issues after 10 years of a very successful career. I was a foreign area officer, and I wanted to be a defense attache at, at, at the Berlin embassy where I was, you know, go train for that. That would have been my job probably in five more years. And I lost all that due to my mental health. And I'm completely happy with where I'm at right now. And I love lobbying and I love DC. So it's not that, but I just wanted to personally thank you for sharing your story. And is there any uh, closing thoughts uh, that you would like to share with us before we let you go? I would like to say to the audience, thanks. Thanks for watching. I'd like to say thanks to Lindsay for doing this. It's fantastic. Thanks for the emphasis on mental wellness. And again, like I, I talked about a few minutes ago, you can be going through the worst crisis. You could be, have, be having suicidal ideations. You could have a plan for suicide. 
you can walk back from all of those things. If you get the right mental health care and you have a desire to get better, you can walk back. You know, the, the, the medical profession is so good that combined with your own willpower, you can get these mental health disorders under control. You need to remember it at, at their root, they are medical conditions. They're medical conditions that deal with, you know, brain cells and brain function and actual physiology that can be treated medically. And if you get the right treatment and you stick with it, you can live a happy, healthy, successful life. Well, thank you for that. I think that was a very powerful message. And thank you again, sir, for the interview. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye.